Let us continue our series on Luke's Gospel. We are in the 11th chapter, and we have been going through the petitions of the Lord's Prayer as recorded in Luke's Gospel. Now, remember, the Lord Jesus undoubtedly taught that prayer in many places, and the words would have varied somewhat, perhaps. And I have been reading from the authorized version this portion because I believe that it is based upon the best text and is the best translation of this section. We'll return to the ESV after we've concluded looking at the Lord's Prayer. And from time to time, I will return to this version when I think that it is uh, superior in translation. But let us now bow before the Lord before reading and expounding and hearing His Word. Our God and our Father, we are here to worship thy name, to worship the one true and only God, the living God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. We are not here to play games. We are here asking, pleading for a special meeting with you and with your presence asking that you inhabit the praises of your people, asking that you would be pleased to deepen our Christian walk and our understanding of your free grace, asking that we will cease being focused upon self and focused upon Christ, no matter our circumstances, that we may be Christ-focused, asking that your Holy Spirit apply the truth of your word to our hearts and continue to grow us in grace and to move us on to glory, but also together asking that those who may be among us who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives, that they would be saved from their sins. Saved, Father, for saved it is. Saved is a good biblical word, and we need to use it more, and we use it now, for we are in desperate need in our lostness apart from Jesus Christ. And so help us, Heavenly Father, to come now through our great high priest, Jesus Christ, our Lord, being lifted up into heaven itself as we now hear the word of God and Christ himself as behind this messenger, he, the ultimate messenger, speaks to us. And these things we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Let's stand now for the reading of God's word, Luke chapter 11. The first verses, this is the word of God. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, when ye pray, say, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. In Matthew, our Lord Jesus said, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
Now, as long as we need bread, we also need forgiveness. Do you know that forgiveness? I want to begin by asking the question, do you know the forgiveness of sins? Are you sitting here this morning and you do not know that your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ? This prayer, of course, is all about forgiveness. Uh, John Stott quotes the head of a British mental hospital who said, I could dismiss half of my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. Forgiveness, of course, is the fundamental need that we have before a holy and a righteous God. So we come now to this petition, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And let's begin with this point. What does it mean to pray for forgiveness? Well, we're acknowledging when we pray this that by nature we are not forgiven, that by nature we are sinners. Luke 11.4 that we have read uses the Greek word harmatia that means missing the mark. There is a goal. God's glory is the goal. We substitute our own goals and lesser goals for the goal of God's glory. And as a poorly aimed arrow misses the mark, we miss deliberately as sinners the mark of the glory of God. We want our own way. Matthew 6.12 uses ophelema, which means debt. Forgive us our debts. Seeking our own glory, we incur debt, and it piles up and up and up. As Jonathan Edwards said, contemplating his own sin, infinite upon infinite, infinite upon infinite. Now, in Matthew 18.25, you recall that there's the parable of the man that was forgiven much who could not, would not forgive someone who owed a small debt to him. Unable to pay. We were unable to pay the debt by nature. We owe God, we owe him our love, our obedience, our gratitude, and we do not pay what we owe, and we have incurred that infinite debt because it is a sin against an infinitely holy God. And the results, of course, according to the Bible, the results are death and damnation. Thomas Boston, speaking of this, speaks of a drowning debt, a growing debt, a debt that reaches up to heaven. Luther said there are three things that he dare not think of without Christ, his sins, death, and the day of judgment. So praying this prayer, we understand that our sins can be forgiven. How can our sins be forgiven? Our sins can be forgiven. We are post-resurrection readers of this prayer, and we know the answer to that. Our sins can be forgiven through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who obeyed the law that we broke, who went to the cross and paid the debt of sin that we owed. Praise God. Here is the glory of the Bible's message. The problem, God's character is absolutely just, and for God to extend mercy to forgive sin, that forgiveness must be based on strict, inflexible justice, and only one way can that justice be met. God himself, the perfect God, the second person of the Trinity, must become perfect, sinless man and pay the debt. He must become man because man sinned. He must be God because it requires an infinitely valuable sacrifice to pay for the infinite load and guilt of our sin, and only God could provide that. This is the glory of it all. God became man and dwelt among us that we might be forgiven our sins. 
The message this morning, first and foremost, is if you do not know that your sins are forgiven, you can know that by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Your sins can be forgiven. Now, that's the great presupposition of the prayer, isn't it? But it speaks here to Christians who have been forgiven. So let's move on in the text, and let's note together that the forgiven sinner continues to pray for forgiveness. Now, there's an error that some people have imbibed. They say, because I'm forgiven, I need no longer ask for forgiveness. The argument is that since God forgives, since he pardons, since he justifies sinners once for all, there's no longer a reason to ask for forgiveness of sins, that indeed for a saved sinner to ask for God to forgive him when he has already been forgiven his sins is an affront, is an affront to God. Well, this argument, first of all, sets aside the plain teaching of Scripture in which God addresses Christians and calls upon us to confess our sins. You know the first chapter of 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is addressing believers. The second chapter of 1 John, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you might not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so to say, I'm forgiven, therefore I need not ask for forgiveness, sets aside the plain teaching of Scripture, and it, fall, it fails to nuance to make certain important distinctions. So let's clear the matter up, may we? First of all, we have this great proclamation of the justifying righteousness of Christ, justification by grace through faith. Justification is a word you need to know. It is a solid biblical word that should be in your everyday vocabulary. It means acceptance with God. Once for all, never to be repeated. The debt is paid. We owe it no longer. When the sinner trusts in Christ, his sin is obliterated. The debt is forgiven once and forever. God takes our sin out of his book of memory, and he sends it away from us and from him. How can God do that? He can do that because he has imputed the perfect righteousness of Christ to those who believe. He imputed our debt to Jesus And he imputes his perfect righteousness, legal righteousness, in his court of law to those who believe in Christ, to every believer. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So as far as God's court of law is concerned, we have now hit the mark. He has imputed the perfect righteousness of Christ to us. No wrath remains for the one who trusts in Christ. God's Son was crushed under our guilt for us. And as soon as you trust in Christ, you are completely, utterly righteous in God's court of law for time and for eternity. You have no debt because that debt has been paid by Jesus. Now that's justification. So why do we pray this prayer? Why do we continue as Christians to ask for forgiveness? Well, because we now have a different relation to God, and that relationship is that of a father to a son and a daughter. We are children. And Martin Lloyd-Jones so wisely called this prayer the children's prayer. 
No longer am I related to God as a criminal before a condemnatory judge. I now know him as father. Believers do not incur God's judicial wrath, but we can incur God's fatherly, loving, fatherly displeasure. And so by praying this prayer, I'm saying I want nothing to hinder my fellowship with my heavenly father. In confessing our sins as believers, we are cultivating broken and contrite hearts before him. And we continue to need to ask for the power of the cross to be applied to our consciences and to our lives. Confessing our sins helps us to know experientially, way down deep within our hearts, the absolute perfection of the work of Christ, to continue to be driven constantly out of ourselves and away from sin to Jesus Christ, out from every other refuge, constantly returning to our one refuge, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in confession, and this is very important, in confessing our sins, we are consciously and overtly praying, particularly against our particular corruptions. I am saying to God, not only am I just asking for forgiveness in some vague and general way, Lord, this is the propensity of my heart. These are my peculiar temptations. These are the things that would overcome me were it not for your grace. And I am coming before you daily praying against my corruptions. Yes, I'm a justified sinner. I'm just in your court of law, but morally my heart is still sinful. I am progressively sanctified, and I can progressively grow in grace. And as I do so, I need to pray particularly against my corruptions, and confession of sin is part of that prayer. So you see, how do we have a good conscience as believers in Jesus? In faith, looking to Christ as our sinless substitute and finding all my righteousness there, and constantly going to him and finding all of my righteousness there, and finding it in no other in finding only in him my salvation. Years ago, there was, um, I have read, a great revival in Uganda among the believers there. I think it was in the 40s and the 50s. Perhaps Waller can enlighten us more on this on some occasion. But uh, it was not um, an unusual thing, evidently, for a believer to stop another believer on the road and to say, brother, have you confessed your sins today? Brother, have you known and felt the power of the cross in your heart today? Now I ask you, are you doing that, believer? Every day we should be on our knees before God, in our closets, alone, wherever it is you pray alone. And you should be saying, Father, search me and try me, and if there is any wicked way within me, I would confess it now. Yes, I would know once again the power of the cross of Christ and the blood of Jesus in my heart and in my soul. Are you doing that? Do you know that? Father, I know you don't condemn me, but I'm your child. I want nothing to harm my relationship with you, and I confess my sin to you. I see it as you see it, and I would hate it as you hate it. And I would see Christ in all the glory and wonder of the promise of forgiveness and the gospel afresh in my heart and in my soul. Are you doing that? If not, begin it. Start it. Do it. Make it habitual. Yes, every day from the heart before God. 
But this leads us in our understanding of this text, thirdly, to this, the meaning of, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, this does not mean merit. God does not forgive us because we forgive others. But it does mean that we fashion our forgiveness of others after his powerful and wonderful forgiveness of us. Some people are always bitter, always unforgiving, because they do not know for themselves the forgiveness of sins. The bottom line, forgiving others demonstrates a heart that is full with forgiveness. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, said, There is none so tender to others as they which have received mercy themselves, that know how gently God hath dealt with them. And so forgiving others, forgiving others is a mark of regeneration. Forgiving others is a mark of the new birth. Forgiving others is a mark of a saved heart. And if your relationships are characterized by backbiting and gossip and belittling or being catty or cruel or revengeful or resentful, then do some soul searching. Do some looking within. Do you know forgiveness yourself? Do you understand the cross yourself? Do you understand the condescending mercy of God in your own heart and in your own life? And if you cannot forgive another when asked, or if you live with an unforgiving attitude, how can you say that you know God's forgiveness? Now that leads us on fourthly to the pattern of forgiveness. We fashion our forgiveness, we have said, after the pattern of his own forgiveness of us. Well, what is that pattern? Well, let me list three things about the pattern of God's forgiveness to us. First of all, the wonderful thing about the pattern of God's forgiveness to us is that his forgiveness of us is at his own initiative. This is the wonderful thing. God came to us. In my helplessness, in my hopelessness, He saw me plunged in deep distress and flew to my relief. He came to me. God did not wait for you to come to him. We were enemies. And in like manner, if you are a part of this church and you have some some heart issue against a brother, then go to that offending brother. If he has offended you, go to that brother. What might that mean for someone here now? You need to go to a brother and you need to say, perhaps that brother doesn't even know there's been some real offense. And I want things to be reconciled and right because that's what God did for me. I want to do that with you. But also God forgives abundantly. God does not say, I forgive you this time, but the next time I'm not so sure. Thank God he doesn't do that. Every day I sin. I can't, I say, Lord, I haven't been up 10 minutes and I've already had an attitude that wasn't right. I've already been up an hour, Lord, and I've, I've had some wicked thought or some wicked intent of the heart. So I'm constantly going to the Lord, aren't you? And saying, Father, straighten out my wicked heart. Show me your forgiveness. And to say, 
isn't it marvelous and abundant mercy that is shown to me that it keeps, keeps forgiving and loving and changing through his Holy Spirit, my heart. But then also, not only God's initiative, not only that he forgives abundantly, but wondrously, God forgets our sins. Yes, the Bible teaches divine amnesia. Now, this does not mean that he does not know that we sinned. God knows all things. But it does mean that he does not remember our sins against us. For those in Christ, he does not drag up our sins, but in the sense that he does not remember our sins against us, he remembers them no more. Not the way we tend to do. Well, yes, I forgave you, but you know what? I'm not forgetting it. Or, yeah, do you remember 10 years ago when you... And we've been holding on to these horrible things within our hearts. God, thankfully, does not do that. He cancels the debt. Let's look at some passages together. I have my AV, probably your ESV. It will not matter for these passages. But in Isaiah 43, I think it will do your heart good to see these for yourselves. In Isaiah 43, verse 25 This is what Jehovah says to his people, and all of these anticipate the cross, of course. Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Just look over the page to chapter 44, verse 22, God says, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Or we might go to the 103rd Psalm. Let's. The 103rd Psalm. And in this great Psalm of David, we read in verse 10 and following, Psalm 103.10, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. Or let's look at one other of the several that we could turn to. Let's look at Micah. The last chapter. The seventh chapter of Micah, beginning at verse 18, in which God says to his people, Micah seven eighteen, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his, of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And we could greatly multiply such verses. 
in which we are told in Holy Scripture that God's attitude toward his own people in Christ, toward our sins, is that he takes our sins away, he covers our sin, he blots out our sin, he scatters our sin as a cloud, he casts it into the depths of the sea. As one Puritan said, he casts it into the depths of the sea, not as a cork that rises again, but as lead that sinks to the bottom. And so we learn to do toward others what God has graciously done for me, for me, for me. I love what was said of Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, the English reformer, that if you did him dirty, he'd be your friend for life. There were two men in a Dutch reformed setting in something like a Presbyterian meeting or a meeting of classes. There was a real difference of opinion. We're not talking about the gospel here, but nonetheless, a real difference of opinion. And you know, it it requires, I think, a great deal of grace to understand that you can differ from a person in principle and still love that person and be gracious and kind to that person. But this was a heated discussion. And it was so heated, it seemed there would be no resolution. And so the moderator, the moderator intervened between these two brothers and said, we need to bring this to a close. And he asked one of the brothers to pray. Well, the brother didn't know what to pray, and so he started to pray the Lord's Prayer as we have it in Matthew. When he came to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, he came to forgive us our, and he, he choked. So he started over. And he said, forgive us our, he couldn't get through it. Finally, he got through it. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Concluded the prayer, and the two men shook hands and loved one another. That's what you need and I need. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, put it this way. When we strive against all thoughts of revenge... When we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them, this is gospel forgiving. Now you cannot begin to pray this child's prayer, not really. Only in form, but not from the heart. You cannot really begin to pray it until your own heart knows what it means to be forgiven your sins. The Puritans used to say, an accusing conscience is like a little hell. When you see that God is a holy God and what you owe and you cannot pay it, and your conscience is accused before him, it becomes a little hell. Sinners do all kinds of things. Some play down their condemnation. Others imagine themselves good. Others lose themselves in religious exercises, but to no avail. Let me tell you, there's only one hope here, the blood of Jesus Christ. A drop of Jesus' blood is infinitely valuable blood for the worst of sins and sinners. 
Isaiah 1.18, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so I call upon you, if you do not know the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, set aside the weapons of your warfare, set aside your own efforts. You cannot save yourself and trust in Christ alone. And now, Christian, before we come to this table, before we conclude our service, before we go to our homes, Christian, you need, perhaps, someone here needs to forgive a brother or a sister who has sinned against you. Now, you forgive when you're asked to forgive. Until then, you have a forgiving attitude. You don't harbor within your heart those things that are wrong and proper toward your brother. One of the Puritans, Joseph Allen, said, Christians, bewail lost conscience and let it be recovered. And the longer you wait to forgive that brother or sister in this congregation or somewhere else that has sinned against you, the longer you wait, you will get a hard heart. And that heart will become harder and harder. And so you see, someone here needs to go and say, Brother, forgive me for my sins. Sister, forgive me. Because the Lord has. And I want things to be right between us too. But you know, even this prayer on our lips is under the value of the blood of Christ. There's no merit in praying this prayer. We may pray it with all sincerity and yet see the faults and failings and the struggles of our hearts to really be obedient. And even in this prayer, we must cast ourselves upon the mercy of God and depend upon his grace and the blood of Jesus Christ that ultimately forgives. Some of you use the Valley of Vision, those, that volume of Puritan prayers. Maybe you use it in your devotions. Uh, very, very fine collection of heartfelt prayers. And there's one of those prayers that sums up well the thrust of our text this morning. And this is what it says, just a part of it. I am guilty, but pardoned. I am lost, but saved. I am wandering, but found. I am sinning, but cleansed. Give me perpetual brokenheartedness. Keep me always clinging to the cross. Keep me always clinging to the cross. That's the point. And God's people said, Amen.